it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 80. Tonight, we're going to do something kind of different and a lot of fun. I think this is going to be really interesting. So Andrew took a deep dive into where the 10% of returns of the S&P over the last 80 years comes from. And tonight, we're going to talk about the individual components that make up that 10% and kind of where it comes from. So I thought this was really kind of fascinating. And Andrew did a lot of great work getting this together. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him. And we're going to chat a little bit about it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I guess that's a good disclaimer, right? That A, I did a lot of work, and B, this is so much <laughs> speculation on my part, right? <laughs> fair, enough. Kind of, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> taking an idea and running with it. Yeah, fair enough. So there's no academic sources for this other than Google. So don't come at me with your pitchforks. But I was always, you know, I'm curious. Uh, it's, it's something you hear all the time, right? People talk about what's the average return I can expect from the stock market. And it's been around 10% a year for over 80 years, like, like Dave mentioned. And, uh, you know, you hear 10%, you hear 7%, and 7% is just the, the return with inflation taken out. Cause inflation's also been pretty constant, pretty consistent around 3% a year. So, it makes for a good kind of estimation, right? If you're thinking about where, where are my finances going to go in the future? How am I going to plan? And, and what's like a reasonable, what are reasonable expectations? You know, I think to think that you could be an average person and become m- more rich than Jeff Bezos just because you're going to be a stock market genius. I think that's obviously absurd. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's not absurd to think that over a long enough time period with consistent deposits and even decent or just average returns from the stock market that you can make uh, quite a bit of a fortune where it can change your life over the very long term. And so if we can kind of look at how how are these assumptions made, then I guess we can feel more confident in understanding that when times get tough, you know, and, and you're going to hear this on and on and on. And, and, and we hear it now with, with the market kind of 
going sideways lately. And you'll hear even more as we get into recession, uh, into a bear market, into times where people think that the world is ending and that this economic prosperity that America has had is something that we'll never, ever see again. And, and everybody wants to talk about it being just this one-time event. So, you know, it can be really easy to hear all those things and get really caught up and start to think, well, you know what? Uh, some of this new data coming out is saying that 10% is unrealistic. And, and you know, you can, you can easily get into this negative mindset and this, this, this real like Debbie Downer mindset about the economy, especially when things are going poorly. But if we can understand like the basic components of it, how, why it's, you know, why it's reasonable that we can expect 10% for the future in spite of all the other factors that we've seen, then maybe that can make us more confident to, to stay invested long-term, to dollar cost average, continue to do that like we talked about last week, to continue to just stay invested and be confident that we've seen 10% over many, many decades, 80 years. There are The, the world is obviously changing. Uh, every single day and and we will talk about some of those big kind of factors and in spite of all of that i think it's still reasonable to think that we can get somewhere around that average for the future and i'm going to talk about why so to talk about why let's break down what are the components that make up this 10% return number this magical 10% return so like i mentioned 3% is going to come from inflation and the other I would call them three factors to consider outside of inflation that is going to create this return for shareholders in the stock market. And I guess I should back up a little bit because uh, what drives returns in general, right? Uh, Obviously, we talk about over and over again, buying a stock is buying part ownership of a business. A business creates profits. A business is able to take those profits, use them to grow. And as the business grows in size, its value tends to grow in size. And so the value, obviously, the value of a piece of that business ownership is worth more and more, especially in a place like the stock market where people are buying and selling every single day. But so if we know that that average is around 7% outside of inflation, you know what drives that? And so I I did this YouTube video a while back. This was over the summer. And... Uh, I just wanted to see like where where does that come from, uh, and just look at some big picture numbers and see if if there's any sort of correlations. I ended up looking at the earnings per share growth of the S and P 500, and the data went back again decades. I think it was 50 or 60 years. And um, we're gonna have a lot of resources. We're gonna link up in the show notes. Um, the one I used in the YouTube video was a data set by Damodoran. Dave, I know, is a huge fan of Damodoran. He has a lot of really cool data sets that you can just input straight into Excel and and really, really, really quickly kind of see what the numbers are telling you. But bottom line, I found uh, over that time period, the EPS growth, the earnings per share growth of the S&P 500 averaged about 6.5%. And so if you think like the average return was about 7%, uh, and then if you reinvest dividends, that brings it back up to 10%. So you can see that the 
an EPS growth in the S and P and its share, you know, the, the returns you get as a shareholder are very, very correlated. They're very, very similar. And, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So now that we know that, okay, this investment return is coming from a combination, you know, for me personally, it's coming from a combination of the stocks I own are going to grow their earnings and they're also going to pay me a dividend so I can reinvest that dividend. So that makes up a big portion. Then the other portion is obviously the earnings per share. And so if we can figure out where that six and a half, seven percent growth comes from, then we can maybe look out into the future and say, is that reasonable to expect uh, to continue? Because, you know, yes, we've seen we've seen it for over 80 years, but that's no guarantee that that we will continue to see it. So, OK, I talked about uh, backed up, right? You keep me on track, Dave. So th- th- these are a lot of ideas kind of uh, being thrown out there. I talked about the uh, EPS growth being correlated with the returns. I talk about the the three factors of population productivity and ROA. Did I talk about that yet or no? No, we have not. You okay. have not discussed so, those yet. So you, right. the last one you talked about was inflation and then you kind of went backwards. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. Sorry, audience. So, okay. So now we know. Focus, okay. Focus. Focus. <laughs> yeah. Let me get my glasses on. No kidding. <laughs> We set the stage. Uh, we're going to try to figure out where this six and a half, seven percent comes from. We understand why it goes down from ten. So there's three big things that are really going to drive. If you really think about what drives business growth, and this is all big picture, right across the entire market, you have population growth. I think that's obvious because the more people that are in the world, uh, the more they will consume. The, you know, the more workers there are, the more they will consume. Uh, that should make the economy grow just on its own. The other thing to think about is productivity. Uh, you talk about innovation, technology, all these things that make the business world bigger, better, faster, more efficient. You're always talking about productivity. And then finally, you have to consider that, kind of like I mentioned a little bit ago, companies are going to create profits. They're going to funnel some of those profits back into their business so that they can create bigger future profits and it turns into its own kind of compounding machine. So let's talk about population growth first. Uh, I sent this chart over to Dave and I guess we could probably link this up too. <laughs> I, I, I'll stop making promises, Dave, because I know you're the one in charge of the show notes, so I'll just shut up and uh, maybe we can talk about this chart for a second. Um, the, the big takeaways I saw from it is historically for the past. So I'm looking at the past 80 years, uh, which which is around when we've seen that stock market average return and, and data before that's kind of limited. But from 1920 to basically today, uh, population growth went anywhere from 0.6% all the way up to 2%. Uh, and it increased rapidly. Um, during the 20s, 30s, 40s, 60s, even. But you know, there's this range. So I think a 0.6% to a 2% population growth. I think we can take that, and let's just say one and a half percent. I think it's reasonable to say one and a half percent population growth uh, contributed to part of that seven percent growth we've seen historically. Does that sound unfair? Not at all. No, it's okay. quite fair, I think. Okay. I guess the next part of that idea 
is that people believe that population growth is going to slow and almost stop. And you can even see it with this chart that um, I sent you where they have like projection where growth just drops off completely. So, I mean, I guess everybody might have their own viewpoint with whether your thoughts, like, do you think, because I think it's obvious, right? If we see growth all the way down uh, right now from the chart, it was 2015 population growth is about 1%. This is across the whole world, right? So 1%, uh, you know, and, and it's been declining. So a, I guess, do you see it continuing to decline or B, you know, what will be the argument against that? That's something to consider. Well, I I think it would probably start to decline simply for the fact of the amount of natural resources to continue to sustain a growth like that in the population. I think is we have a finite amount of resources we can use as human beings, i.e., food, uh, water land to live on land to live on you could argue there's probably plenty of land but just fly across uh (laughs) yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah just drive across nebraska there's plenty of room to grow (laughs) uh no offense to the nebraskans out there uh so you know thinking about just just you think about water which is a, a fairly you know, limited resource. And you think about food, we can only grow so much food. Although I could argue being from Iowa, we could grow enough corn to f- feed everybody everywhere. Uh, there's, I think there's just the ability to get that food to everybody. I think just starts to, you know, there's just a finite amount of space and food at this point and work that would be able to sustain a continual growth of the population and when you take into account some of the quote unquote third world nations that have risen, uh, i.e., India recently, uh, China recently, their population growth, their population growth, I believe, have started to, to slow. And here in the United States, ours is, you know, uh, I think has slowed quite a bit as well with the baby boomers, their generation getting older the generations that have followed them, I think have had less kids. And I think in the United States now they're having, we're having less kids we're having older and we're having less kids. And I think that's a trend that is occurring across the rest of the world, which would help slow the growth of people having more children and the population growing. And I guess that's kind of why I think that, you know, their projections here with the growth of the population swing, I think is probably a fairly accurate projection. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> I have some weird ideas. I I think the, uh, yes, there is obviously a trend in the United States uh, to have less kids and there's like growing movements of people who are just not having kids at all. Uh, people that just want to travel and, um, you know, there's not as much uh, focus on family like there was previously in previous decades. And you see that obviously in pop culture and everywhere else. But I don't know. I Why did hipsters get so popular? You know, like somebody had to start the whole hipster thing and it became it was something that was born out of uh, like essentially contrarians, but like for style wise. 
And, and so may, I think maybe what if that happens with kids and families where something something changes and all of a sudden it becomes cool to have a family again? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe that could do something. I will also say... Um, when it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I think right now, uh, with the 1% growth, even if you have it... uh, slash in half you're talking about like half a percent instead of a percent of of growth and even these projections don't have any sort of population declines uh they're projecting like a steady decline but i i think the the projections a bit extreme i think a lot of things can happen um technologically and with food and water and and as these third world countries kind of build themselves up i don't know i just see i guess i'm kind of like a half glass full type of person when it comes to the future but let's say even in a a pretty bad scenario for the world population if if growth slows from like around a percent to down to like half of that like let's say 0.6 percent that's still around the same growth that we saw during the 1920s 1910s uh and then it started to pick up 
uh, shortly after that. But you know, we're talking about half a percent difference. Is is that going to make a huge difference on investment returns? Because I'll give a spoiler alert: all these factors add up to that seven percent. So it is something kind of cool, right? To say that you know, okay, yes, population is slowing, has been slowing since 1960. Will it continue to slow? Possibly, but will that will that be devastating? Right? All these all this talk about the um, baby boomers getting older and not to be morbid, but you know, uh, moving along. Is that going to be devastating for the for the stock market? And are we going to see this this huge like Great Depression? I mean, maybe, but is that going to be long term? I don't know. So, so I think those are some things that we can kind of try to challenge because even uh, going half of this growth, we're still going to see just like a half a percent difference as far as the overall economy. So that keeps me with my half glass full mentality. Any other thoughts on population? Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Not necessarily in population, but I think this can kind of segue into what you're going to talk about next is the productivity of the people that are here on earth is going to change. And as the economy and the types of jobs that are out there uh, changes, with the digitization of everything that's going on in the world, you know, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's, you know, automation of in the retail world, whether it's automation in the medical field, there's just so many different routes that uh, machines and our interactions with computers and all the, the possibilities out there, I think is going to probably increase the productivity which will help increase economies. So even though there may be a slowdown in the growth of the population, I think there will be an increase in the productivity of people as that changes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, I think, so I wanted to discuss uh, this article that I also sent to you. The overall summary was he was saying after 150 years the american productivity miracle is over mm-hmm. and, and i don't think it's like this crazy idea that not a lot of people think of i think he he essentially said that uh we had huge technological advances that happened uh such as obviously the automobile um airplanes what else did he mention on there just a lot of different inventions that really changed the world and so this really engine yeah mm-hmm. yes yeah yes yes so those are obvious big inventions and he's saying that that's what drove all this productivity because because we saw about uh historically there was anywhere from two to four percent productivity growth uh per year so so that's quite a bit and so there's this idea now that we've kind of invented everything there is to invent we're uh, approaching the end of Moore's law, which is for computers, basically that they can only get so small and so fast until you get to like a molecular level. And then there's a limit, like you can't continue to go that fast. So he really had this idea and this article, and I guess he wrote a book about it too, um, that productivity is just 
going to decline and it, it declined during uh i guess the great recession was really when we first started hearing about this mm-hmm. and he believes it's going to going to really be bad and we won't see that same kind of economic growth and you say differently oh i say differently because you know he also was mentioning uh in the article that i was reading that they were talking about the the change in how we do things and the overall uh, embrace of technology, i.e. the computer in our world. So you think about, I mean, even in the last 10 years, you think about the evolution of how a computer interacts. I mean, I, I just think about my own, you know, uh, field that I'm working in, in the restaurant business right now. I think about how we place our orders for, an employee to order food from the kitchen is drastically changed. Gosh, even in the last five years, it's gone from, you know, very basic computing things to handheld iPads that are wirelessly connected to printers in the kitchen. And, you know, to the point where the guests can even order from their tables to the kitchen without a server interact. I mean, there's just, there's so much, you know, productivity in that realm that allows other things to happen to enhance guest experience where they're sitting down to eat. And all those things lead to more and more innovation in those types of, of fields. And, you know, I just see the different evolutions of all these different things. And you look at the evolution of the phone. I mean, goodness, I mean, with, you know, the iPhones and Samsung's, you know, lines of products and the technology and the ability of things that you can do with these things. Now you can fax, you can email, you can text, you can, you know, scan things. I mean, with all the ability to, you know, basically run your business from your phone, it's just allows you to do more things and to be more creative and to have other opportunities and to focus on, a lot of different things as opposed to spending hours and hours and hours working on paperwork. Now you can do it in a very limited time, which frees you up to do other things, which allows you to be more productive and to get more things done instead of being bogged down with the timeliness of the, I guess the time eating crunch of other things that will hamper your ability to do you know, more productive things to better your business, whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands or, you know, whatever kinds of things will come up that, you know, you can do to have more FaceTime. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've noticed even just in the restaurant business, the technology has allowed you, you know, ironically has allowed you to spend more time with your guests because you're not bogged down with taking a lot of time to make place orders you know back in the old days you know i'm older than you so uh i remember the days when we had to write things down and go back and hand them to the kitchen and you know you think about the time that it takes to take an order write it legibly enough that you can give it to the kitchen so they can order it and they can make everything it's just it slows everything down so much and now with the technology it allows you to spend more time with your guests or to spend more time with more guests. And I just think that there is the the ability to interact with 
things and be more productive is going to exponentially explode because of how technology is going to react to everything. And, you know, yes, there's going to be bumps in the road because as more and more businesses are trying to embrace this, there's going to be financial hurdles to get across. There's going to be some technology hurdles to get past. And there's going to be other challenges like just teaching people. You think about people that are coming from an industry where maybe they were more blue collar and now they're going to be working, learning computer skills and using those abilities to do other things. And there's just so many things that are going to change with, with the technology that I just think the productivity will increase. Yeah, that's a great point about the whole technology thing. And you can run a business from your phone. They, uh, I can't remember where I saw or read or heard this, but apparently like air conditioning has spurned on so much growth and innovation and productivity like no other invention because you think now we have all these people who can all all times of the year sit down in their office and get work done huge productivity change and then that's just one innovation right obviously right. phones and everything computers they have their own and and it, it spans across every industry it's 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 amazing it really is so that you know we're obviously very optimistic about the future there There's so many different things uh you, you can he can he kind of talks about uh i guess i won't beat this horse any longer but if if you look at so historically uh there's lots of different uh d- data graphs charts anywhere from like 0 to 4% kind of hovering around the 2% range depending on which graph, which chart you're looking at. So if we can assume, you know, one and a half, one and a half to 2% came from population growth, uh, say one to 3% came from productivity, just increases. That's obviously going to translate into profits for these businesses because now their labor is creating that much more output. So where's the remaining two, 2%, two to 3%? This was something that um, I didn't find it from research. I didn't really, (laughs) I guess I'm still testing if it's even like a valid idea, but it makes sense in my head. So maybe now I just throw it out into the world and maybe either people are going to be like, no, you're an idiot and you're wrong or actually, hey, this makes sense. So I was, I was folding some laundry and I had this thought. So we have obviously the demographics of people and how they can work. And then what's the other aspect of businesses is they create profits and they reinvest them into their business. So I went back, I looked, this is another uh, data set from Damodoran. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, he looked at the payout ratio for, for businesses. As we know, the payout ratio tells you how much of a company's earnings that they pay out in dividends to shareholders. So I was kind of shocked to to find out that that's around 50, 50%. Uh, again, this is, goes back for many decades. I, I always thought it'd be much less than that, you know, w- with all these talks about how dividend yields are so low and dividends really aren't being paid out. But in my head, it, it didn't seem that, wow, actually half of what they're bringing in, they're just returning to shareholders right away. That's that's actually pretty good. So if we, if we know that about 50... Uh, 50, 55, 45% uh, 
I think it's forty five percent. So we know half is going back to shareholders. The other half, we can kind of assume that generally most of half of that's going to go back into the business. So how do you reinvest money into the business? Uh, a big way that you do that is you buy assets, and those are going to be assets that provide an income stream that that create more profits in the future. So I ran some other uh, kind of back of the napkin numbers. And I wanted to figure out, okay, um, so let's take it like a really simple example. Let's say a business earns $100 in profit. We already established $50 of those are going to go back to the owners and dividends. What do they do with the other $50? And, uh, you know, is there some sort of like basic average where it, it makes sense that there, it's kind of like a rule that, uh, that this tends to be this tends to be the average for the majority of companies. So I looked at like some other averages. So like average return on equity and average return on assets. Basically I found that there's something around a return on assets of about seven percent. And so where that number comes from, so we take our fifty dollars again and then if we take 7% of that, that contributes and that becomes a three three and a half percent growth. So if you follow me back to, to where we were with, with the whole discussion, we have a couple percentage points in population, a couple percentage points from productivity growth, and now we have about 3% from return on the assets that we are reinvesting, right? That we're acquiring. And that's how we get our magical 7% number. And and then if you take that a step further and you think about, if I'm a business owner, my options, and this is why 7% makes a lot of sense. I'm a business owner, right? Let's say I own this business. And so basically these profits are mine. I can do whatever I want with them. I can take, I can take this $100 and I can go buy a $100 car. And, and that's if, if that's my prerogative, right? That's what I want to do. I can totally do it. But you know, as, as somebody who's wanting to compete for the long term, I understand that I need to grow if I want to compete and, and not let a competitor swallow me up. So you want to at least get like a decent amount of growth. And so let's say I'm going to reward myself with $50 in profits. And then the other $50, I have to figure out how I'm going to, what I'm going to do with that money. Now, if if I was able to let's let's pretend in like an alternate reality we had bonds as investments, and let's say bonds would give you an automatic twenty percent return on your investment every single time. Well, it's obvious, right? If if that was twenty percent, if I know that my return on new assets is seven percent, but I could take that money and go buy twenty percent in bonds, I would I would use the corporation to buy bonds because because you know these corporations they can buy assets just like and they can make investments just like people can. So instead of buying new assets from my business, I would I would just buy these bonds returning 20% and that would compound my profits much faster than than growing my business organically with 7% returns. And so I think it's it's really interesting when you when you figure out that it, it almost makes sense the market almost uh, plays itself out that you have the average return on new assets organically in a business tends to be around 7%. And so that kind of is the even out point because if it, if it was much more, right, 
if uh like if the stock market averaged fifteen percent, then we would have a bunch of companies doing that same scenario that I talked about where where they would be buying up stocks instead of assets for their own business. And so I hope that makes sense where I'm saying that the average return on assets to organically grow your business, it needs to in order for you to be competitive, it needs to be around what you could get from alternative investments. And so because this whole discussion today from this podcast episode We've established that 7% return from the stock market and, and we figured out where that comes from. And I think I, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a light bulb moment that when you add up population growth, productivity growth, and return on asset growth, I don't think it's a coincidence that that magically also adds up to 7%. Because again, if you take half of your earnings and you get 7% return on new assets from half of those earnings... That adds up to two to three percent growth, which makes up that third and final component of population growth, productivity growth, and organic business growth. So, I guess that's my breakthrough insight today. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening. I hope you enjoyed our talk about where that ten percent comes from. I appreciate Andrew taking all the time and effort to dig that up and. It's really fascinating that he came up with that idea while he was folding laundry. I'm impressed that A, he was thinking. I was thinking he was thinking. And B, he was doing laundry. That's impressive. So uh, I think those were great insights that he came up with. And I, it really helped explain it to me when he said, when he saw the, all this information earlier uh, this week. It was, I, I was honestly having trouble piecing it together. But when we were talking about it uh, this evening before we got on the air, it was like, wow, okay, this all makes sense. This is quite fascinating. So, uh, I will put indeed put all this information in the show notes so that you guys can see the charts. You can see the links to some of the different uh, papers that we are talking about, and it'll help you get a sense of everything that we are talking about tonight. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Go out there and have a great week. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.